0: Grab your seats and grab your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the New Testament letter. It's, we call it a book, but it's a letter, the letter or the gospel according to Mark. That's in the New Testament. If you're not sure where that's located, basically take your Bible, open it in half, and then go to the right a little bit further. Mark is one of four gospels, and the word gospel simply means good news, It is one of four letters written by four different individuals sharing the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of this man, this Galilean peasant who happens to be God, named Jesus Christ. And so we are in a series walking through this gospel because if you're like me, you need good news. And this is the greatest news ever told. And so we're going to get into that this morning. Also, we're using, sort of as a uh, a common denominator for our series, our Mark journals. And it's not just through the Gospel of Mark, rather, there's a daily reading in here that takes you through all four Gospels over the weeks that we'll be studying Mark together. But if you do not have a Gospel of Mark journal, go ahead and raise your hand. Some of our uh, gentlemen in the back, they'll bring them forward. I see some hands, just keep them up high here. I see one here, one over there, a few here. But if you want to take notes, I invite you to turn with me to page 30. That's going to be today's space. And this morning's title, if you are one of those who likes titles, which I've been told some of you do, you're like, hey, you've got a space for titles. Why do you never give us your title? Short answer is I always forget. So this morning I remembered. Today's title, if you want to put this down, is simply three words. Are you ready? Ceiling Cutter Friends. Ceiling Cutter Friends friends. It was August 5th of 2010 when the world heard about the tragic event happening in the country of Chile. One of the main mines in Chile, the San Jose mine had collapsed, trapping within the shaft 33 miners. Within about 36 hours 130 workers showed up and began to plan how they were going to rescue these 33 men. And they began to discuss what are our options? How do we get them out? What do we do? It was about two days into the process on August the 7th that the miners were able to send a note attached to a little light, a flare, up through a crevice that said, We're okay all 33 of us. But that began a process that lasted not a couple weeks, but a couple months of figuring out how will we help them? They opened up a shaft big enough just to send down food and communication. Weeks later they began to work out how they could get something large enough down to open up a space big enough to bring up the men. And here's just a few of the pictures here. I'll, let me show you this one right here. They figured out a way, after drilling deep enough, 2,300 feet, 2,300 feet, almost a mile into the earth to get to the men. they widened up the hole enough that by late September, they began to work with this pod, figuring out how do we get this pod down to them, almost like a vertical coffin. And it wasn't until October... Of that year, 69 days after the cave-in, that the first miner made his way out. And around the world, cheers were heard as we celebrated those who were trapped, who were stuck, who had no ability of saving themselves. Saved. And I remember so many Christians began to ask this question as they saw this vivid picture of a rescue mission beyond the ability of those trapped, but from those above who said, What will we do? What do we need to do to rescue those we love? And this brings to mind an interesting question for us today, church. And here's the simple question that we're going to look at in these few verses together. Here's the question Are you ready? How far would you go? What would you be willing to do to rescue someone you love? How far would you be willing to go? What depths would you be willing to traverse? What resources would you be willing to grab hold of? What would you be willing to do to rescue someone you love? That's the question that Mark presents us in this beautiful story of a moment in Jesus' ministry from Mark, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is the words from the Gospel according to Mark. It says this, A few days later, when Jesus had again entered Capernaum, that's simply a village on the north, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. The word Capernaum simply means the village of Nahum. He's an Old Testament prophet. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And I love this. This has become his new home, his base of operation during the three years of his ministry. This is where Jesus spent the bulk of his time, did his ministry. In fact, this is where his good friend Peter lived. And we believe that Jesus probably lived with Peter when he was in Capernaum. Peter and Andrew, they were there, had a house there with Peter's mother-in-law, and they were all sort of there. And so this is where Jesus was. In fact, the story we're about to look at, we believe, took place probably in Peter's home, which will make the story a little bit more interesting as you read through it. So a few days later, Jesus comes home to Capernaum. So many people gathered that there was no room left. Not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So get the picture. Jesus has shown up into his hometown, his new adopted home, Capernaum, and he begins to speak and to preach. Now, many people were there not because they wanted to hear a sermon, but they wanted to see a miracle. Jesus has, in the previous chapter, just healed so many people who were demon-possessed or sick, a leprous man. And now people are going, wow, let's see what he'll do today. And so people are flooding in. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, the scene where the house is packed out. In fact, people are peeking in through the windows, people at the doors, people crowding in the courtyard, just trying to hear what he has to say. And we're told Jesus preached the word of God. Specifically, Jesus preached the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus was in the habit of preaching. And he goes on. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now I always like the translations that say bringing to him a lame man because it's always fun then to look at your friends and be like, you're lame. And so, but that's not, it's, it simply means they could not, that he could not walk. And so four friends carry this man to Jesus since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd. Now stop right there. Imagine you are one of these good friends. You are carrying a corner of his mat and you've got a man who cannot walk. Perhaps this is a congenital birth defect. Perhaps he has never been able to walk. Or maybe he was in a worker's accident and he, he fell beneath the, you know, a wheel on a, on a cart and he got crushed. Who knows what happened, but this man is not able to walk. Can you imagine for a moment that you're carrying this friend and And we don't know where they came from. Maybe they came from Capernaum. Or maybe like so many others, they came from the surrounding countryside. They came from places far away, maybe miles and miles, simply because they have heard rumor that this man named Jesus has the ability to heal. But you get there. And you look at the house, and the house is packed. In fact, you can't really even see much of the house for all the people gathered outside of it. And it says that because of the crowd, they could not get to Jesus. Quick question, if you were in their shoes, what would you do? How far would you go? What would you do to rescue someone you love? Would you get creative in that moment or would you turn around and say, hey, let's come back when he's not so busy? Or, or <clears throat> would, you, would you start to bemoan the fact that life is not fair? What would you do in that moment? But here's where the story takes such a beautiful turn. And notice what happens. Long before, long before we see supernatural activity from God, we see natural activity of men saying, I will do whatever it takes to bring someone to Jesus. Often we're waiting for God to move while we sit around when God is saying, I will meet you as you move. And so it says this. So what they did? They made an opening in the roof above Jesus. Now, let me show you a little bit here. And after doing or digging through it, lowering the mat, the paralyzed man was lying on. Now notice this verse. Well, we'll we'll skip here. This is a map, Capernaum. This is where Jesus is located. I want to give you a picture though. This is sort of the scene. This is probably similar to the kind of house that Jesus would have been teaching in. We think that it probably was not a real small house. It may have been a two-story Galilean home because Peter and Andrew were fishermen. And in that time, in that place, fishermen were not dirt poor But rather, because of the Sea of Galilee's fertile fish, they were able to sell them to areas and probably were not scraping by. And so, a typical Galilean home had a a flat roof. Now, this one doesn't show up, but underneath this roof, right along here, there would be beams running across the house. Across and hanging on top of the walls. Those are the support beams. And then over top those would be a mesh of various things such as branches and twigs and, and uh, other things that they could find. And then on top of that, they would pack down dirt. It would be mud, but they'd pack it and pack it and pack it. And it would dry. Then they'd pack more on top of it and then more on top until it was like cement. And the roof of the house was where you would go to get away from the heat inside the house. It's where you might sit out or have a meal. Many people would sleep on the roof of their house. In fact, we have a story of that in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is resting and he's on the roof of a house when he sees the vision of the sheet with all the animals coming down. He was probably in a house like this. So they go to this and they say, how are we going to get to Jesus? So you can almost see them struggling to carry the friend up the side here and can you imagine almost i mean get the picture one guy who's in the front he starts to lift a little too high and the guy's in the back and go whoa whoa, whoa whoa pull it down pull it. and the guy's hanging on for dear life hoping he's not going to die before he meets jesus and so they have to get him up the up the stairs and they get to the top here but this is what they had to dig through see the support beams all the stuff And they get there and they begin to dig and they begin to dig and and you can almost imagine because they didn't come prepared to dig. They're using their hands, they're using whatever they can find. Maybe they find a broom and say flip it over and start using the handle of the broom. Whatever they have to do, they begin to bust through And can you imagine being inside the house in this moment? Any of you ladies, not like dirt and dust on your floors, how would you feel if you see four brawny dudes digging through your ceiling. People are sitting around Jesus. Jesus is talking. You have the scribes who we're going to meet in just a moment, the upper class philosophers and theologians of the day. They're crowded in and people start feeling dust and dirt falling on their heads. A stick falls, hits someone on the head. People start to move back. Everything stops. And all of a sudden, a pinprick of light opens and then more and more and more until you see Four guys looking down, saying, we got a present for you, Jesus. And they begin to lower their friend. What would you do? Where would you go? How far would you go to rescue someone you care about? And notice what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, this is a real important point, church, sometimes we assume that faith is simply something we think. That is not faith. James tells us that faith Without works, without activity, without a lifestyle, faith without works is dead. We should be able to not only hear about your faith, but see your faith in action. Jesus saw their faith, their active belief. He saw their faith. So he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is such an incredible passage Because when I read this, it is so interesting to me that it's not simply the paralytic who had faith. They too have faith. In fact, it is their faith that compelled them through the barriers, the difficulties that they were facing. They believed that Jesus was able to do something they could not do, so they were willing to do all that they could do to get their friend to Jesus. In fact, when you think about it, we often see the length to which we are willing to go is dependent on the depth of our faith. How much do I believe that Jesus can do what we are asking him to do determines how long I push through, how much I am willing to give and sacrifice to help rescue another. And the other thing is this. You notice the friend is not able to get to Jesus on his own. Quick poll. How many of us woke up one morning without ever hearing the name of Jesus Without a friend bringing us to church, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, without anyone speaking about God to us, how many of us lived in an environment where we had never heard the name of Jesus from anyone else? And then one day, we just woke up and we all of a sudden believed there was a God and his name was Jesus. And we came to faith. And you go to the river, you go to the, your bathtub and you go, I now baptize myself. I mean, how many of us had that moment? Not a one of us. You are here. I am here because there was another friend who, when I could not carry myself, when you could not carry yourself, they carried you to Jesus. They were ceiling cutter friends. Here's the deal when I think about these ceiling cutter friends, ceiling cutter friends will carry the weight of their friends, they will carry the burdens, the frustrations, the difficulties. Ceiling cutter friends will overcome the crowds. And when you think of the crowds, don't just think about people about... You understand that we live in a culture that is increasingly not simply indifferent but opposed to the name of Jesus Christ. Overcoming the crowds is not simply saying I've got to get around them but to recognize that if you follow Jesus there will be moments where your way of living comes in conflict with the prevailing norms. But ceiling cutter friends do not quit simply because the culture says one thing, they press through, they overcame the crowd. Ceiling cutter friends, I like this one, face the criticism. See, here's the thing. If you come against the crowd, if you go around the norm of culture, there will be those moments where people are going to criticize you for what you do. And in that moment, you get to decide, how far am I willing to go to rescue a friend? What lengths am I willing to take? What criticism will I bear so that another person may know Jesus' name? They carry their friend's weight. Overcome the crowds, face the criticism, and they pay the cost. I mean, i got to tell you, if someone busts through my ceiling, unless insurance is covering it, they're covering it. And yet you got to imagine that if they get to this point, they say there is nothing, nothing, nothing as important as getting our friend to Jesus Christ. I think about some of the ceiling-cutter friends I've known throughout the years. I think about my friend Mike who's not a Christ follower for most of his adult life. He lived a pretty rough life. He'd been in the military, and as he put it, the military was just a, a hard place, and a hard place to become a Christ follower. And although he had a great wife, things just were always difficult, and he got into some behaviors from his military career, into alcohol and other things. And, but his wife was just a devoted follower of Jesus, And she wasn't one of those who nagged him or beat him up. Instead, she became a ceiling-cutter friend. Every day, she prayed for her husband. Every morning, she got up and prayed for her husband. She said one of the most awkward moments, I'm sorry, Mike said one of the most awkward moments for him would be when he'd wake up and he'd look over and his wife would be on her knees next to their bed praying and he'd be like, oh no, she's doing it again. And then he'd just roll back over. But for 40 years, she prayed for him. She carried Mike to the feet of Jesus in prayer for 40 years. And I remember when Mike gave his life to Jesus. And we had a conversation and he said, I got to tell you, there were days I did not believe. There were seasons that I thought there could not be a God. There were 40 years that I did not come to faith. But when I did not have faith, my wife carried me to the Father with her faith she cut a hole in the ceiling for Mike. And the beautiful story is that this happened about a year and a half before Mike went home to be with Jesus Christ. I think about a lady who I affectionately call Aunt Ruth. Aunt Ruth and her husband Mac, called him Uncle Mac, although we were not related. Aunt Ruth was my mother's first grade teacher. My Mom grew up in what might be described as a marginally Christian home. It was one of those that sort of the CEO Christians you know what that is Christmas and easter only Christ, Christians right so you show up at Christmas and easter and that 's about it, maybe, but my mom had this wonderful first grade teacher who I affectionately called Aunt Ruth, who loved my mom when she was just a little girl and She got permission to invite mom to start going to church with her. And so every Sunday she would pick up my mom and she would take her to church. And because of the impact of Aunt Ruth and Uncle Mac... My mom became a Christ follower. They were ceiling cutter friends. Oh, there's opposition because family's not involved. Oh, there's opposition because schedules are busy. Oh, there's opposition. We don't have any kids of our own, but we've got our own life, got our own thing. We will still do whatever it takes, go wherever we must go to take and rescue another person. I think about one more friend who's a ceiling cutter friend. I'll I'll call him Greg. Some of you may know him, so we'll just call him Greg for the sake of this. But for a season, his father-in-law had just become wayward from the family. His his father-in-law had been a devout Christ follower, but went through some sort of midlife crisis. But it wasn't like he just got a mohawk and put a tattoo on his arm that said, I love mom. In fact, his father-in-law just would disappear for days on end and Although the family was, you know, they loved the dad, they they did whatever they could, they just said, we don't know what to do. And I remember my friend Greg, not because he told me, but because his father-in-law told me after the fact, Greg, many nights, would spend hours driving around the city looking for his father-in-law to bring him back home. And this went on for about 18 to 20 months And I remember after it all happened, the father-in-law, we were at a function. I didn't know him real well, but I said, hey, it's so good to see you. And he says, man, but by the grace of God and because of Greg, I'm here. And I said, what do you mean? And he began to explain what had happened. And he said, Josh, I won't even tell you the places that he found me. But I want you to know that because of him, God found me again how far would you go? What would you do to bring someone to Jesus Christ? How many of us in here need a ceiling cutter friend? How many of us are that lame person? We just need help. And so, he brings him to Jesus. And notice the next thing that happens here. Jesus does not say, get up and walk. Notice what Jesus leads with. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, If you are the paralyzed person, are you saying, yippee, at this moment? Nope, I wouldn't be. In this moment, I think I'd be going something more like, um, thank you? Um, that's nice, but could I exchange that for a pair of legs that work? You know, I just just need a pair of legs. I mean, think about this. How much he must have thought that if he could only walk, everything would be different in his life. If only I could walk, Jesus, then my life would be better. If I could walk, I could have a job. And if I could have a job, then I could get married because I could take care of my wife. And if I could have a job, then I could get married, and then I could have children, and I could have a legacy, and I could have a family, and in my old age, there would be those to take care of me. So if I just had a pair of legs, I could work, have a wife, have kids, respect. Jesus, if I just had legs, everything would be better. Quick question. Have you ever asked the question of God, or made the statement rather, if I only had blank? What's your blank? What's that thing that you think, if you just had that, then everything would be better? Maybe it's if you had a spouse, then everything would be better. For some, it's if you didn't have a spouse, it would all be better. For some, it's going to be if I just had a job or a better job or if I was in better health, if I didn't have that health report, if I had this situation, then everything would be better. But you notice, Jesus realizes something we don't get. Jesus realizes that no matter what he gives the man this side of eternity, it's not what he needs most. I love what author and writer Tim Keller says. He says, the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering it's his sin. It doesn't matter how many laps you can run with those legs. If you are separated from God, that is a far worse place to be. The worst thing is not the suffering, it's the sin. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, church, I need to just be real frank with you. This is where the story of Jesus goes south in a lot of ways. First chapter, everyone loves Jesus because he's the miracle worker. Things are going great, But now is where it all turns. Because as soon as he says to the man, your sins are forgiven, you're going to have some old curmudgeon saying, well, who has the right to do that? Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. That word simply means he is claiming to be God and nobody is God except for God. Who can forgive sins but God Alone. Let, me, uh, let me sort of illustrate it this way. The Jewish leaders and people believed that all sin is ultimately against God. This is why in Psalm 51, David says to God, against you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. That everything we do is ultimately against God. And so, and here's why. Who made us, Church? Okay, let's start, let's start at the very beginning. <clears throat> who made us, church? God. Very good. Okay, God made you. This is important. God loves you. God made you. All that. Okay, God made you. If he made you, then who owns you, church? God owns you. You're getting a hint. This is great. Okay, let's go for three. If God made you, and if God owns you, then if someone else harms you, whose stuff is that person harming? God's stuff. You are God's stuff. He made you. He loves you. He owns you. You do not belong to yourself. You are God's. So the Jewish people believe that when you sin, it is ultimately against God. Let me just give you uh, a real simple example. Uh, Let's say that uh, Mitch and Hunter uh, were, were... hey, dude, how you doing, Hunter? Doing all right? He's like, he's talking to me. Okay, let's pretend for a moment that Mitch and Hunter are having a bad day. A- and let's just say that they get into, they they just, just kind of arguing, and finally, just finally, Hunter, because he's a strapping young man, gets up and does like this super-duper punch and just poof, knocks his dad down. First off, we'd all be very impressed. To, I mean, Now imagine, though, by the way, any of you dads, if your son hits you, what, what happens next Oh, it's on that's the end of life as you know it son now imagine for a moment that happened and I come bebopping over there there's Mitch there's Hunter Hunter doing the little Rocky Balboa moment Mitch on the ground and I come over and I say to Hunter Hunter I forgive you for what you've just done now what do you think Mitch would be thinking right then Dude, there's some consequences first that need to be dealt with. That's one. But second, he would probably rightly be thinking, he didn't hit you, Josh. He hit me. Who are you to grant forgiveness on my behalf? Only the one ultimately offended can grant forgiveness. Jesus, when he grants forgiveness, Forgiveness. he is saying. He is God. He owns us all. Every sin ever committed is ultimately against him because he owns us. He owns all things. So when I sin against myself, against you, against what God has created, I am ultimately sinning against him. Understand, some people say Jesus never said he was God. Right here, the Pharisees the teachers of the law got it right because they say he is claiming to be divine because only God forgives sin. And what's interesting, when this happens, because of what, they, what happened here, Jesus sets up the entire conflict that will lead ultimately to his dying on a cross for us. It is because he granted this man's forgiveness of sins that he will die. You see, this is why when he says next, he says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? And we say, well, which one is easier? And he says, you don't understand. Yes, I can heal this man, but the cost of forgiving his sins. In this moment, Jesus is saying, for forgiveness of sins, I am sentencing myself to death. Which one's easier, to simply give him his legs or give him his life? Jesus, in this moment, is doing both. And so he says, get up. Take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the moment where Jesus comes in conflict with the religious leaders. This is the moment where he signs his own death. By forgiving sins, he claims to be God. And they say, we can't tolerate this. Here's what you need to know. The four friends are not the only ceiling cutters of this story. Jesus Christ is the ultimate ceiling cutter. He left heaven. He cut through the floor, if you will, of heaven "...down to us. He did not lower another, but he came himself. He did not come because he needed healing, but so, to, so that he could grant healing. Jesus is the ultimate ceiling cutter friend." I have a question this morning. How many of you need a friend like Jesus today? I know I do. To know that no matter what I do, he not only will go wherever it takes him, because he came to earth He will do not only whatever it costs, he did that because he died on the cross. He will pay whatever price, giving his own life so that you and I may not simply receive our legs, but receive our life. Jesus is the ultimate ceiling cutter friend. And so here's where we're going to end this morning. Can you find yourself in this story today? See, one of the beautiful things about the stories that we read, they're not simply make-believe and they're not just for, hmm, that's interesting. But every one of them is intended for us to find ourselves in the story. Question this morning, you are one of three people, who are you? Are you a friend who's a ceiling cutter and tonight you're going to be beating down the doors of heaven in prayer You're a ceiling cutter who will go physically and find that friend, encourage that friend, be available. You'll take that friend to coffee. Is that who you are today? Then praise God for you. Continue to do what it takes. Are you the friend who just needs to be carried? See, here's the reality. Jesus saw their faith, but we need each other because there are days where my faith is strong and other days where it's weak. And I need your faith in those days when I'm weak. Are you a ceiling cutter friend or are you someone who just needs to be carried To Jesus this morning, we're going to have a time of prayer, and some of our leaders are going to be ready to pray for you in just a moment here. But there's a third category. Do you see it? It's the it's the Pharisees, the people who are so concerned with how things look that they never see what God is up to. Where are you this morning? We're going to go into this time of prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come to the front. There will be one over here, one in the center, and one over here to this other side, wherever you are. Here's the question. Do you need a prayer cutter friend? Our prayer teams, go ahead, prayer teams, come on and make your way to the front here. Our prayer cutter friends, they want to pray for you. They want to encourage you. And maybe this morning, you just need to pray for someone else. Maybe you're not the one who's in need, but you want to be a prayer cutter for your end, and you want to partner with God. But this is the time, this is the place where we as a body of Christ get to go to God, and we get to carry one another to Him. So let's stand together. Let's go to the God who hears and the God who heals in this time of prayer.